If you're wondering why I'm up here like this, we have a, a guest preacher with us this morning, so I won't be bringing the message. This is, we have uh, Pastor Steve Kern, and Pastor Steve is is the lead pastor of an organization called Good News in Action. Um, he went down to, I'm sure he's going to tell some of his story, but went down to uh, El Salvador in the mid-80s, and from there they have birthed church after church after church. I, can, I used to know the number, but it, it can't constantly changing, so I don't know what that number is, but it is very impressive what, what's going on in in Central America and has been going on for the past 30 years. Um, I, I've taken, I think, seven or eight trips down there. This church, we, we go down there every week, every week, every year. Uh, in fact, we had a group go to Bogota in January. I went to Mexico City in March, and we've got a, a small but very talented group of evangelists going to El Salvador in October. October. Okay. Next year we're going somewhere. I don't know where we're going, but we're going to go someplace cool and tell people about Jesus. And so hopefully maybe through this message, if you're praying about it, that's something you want to be a part of. You know, we're going to be planning. We're going to send a team somewhere. And so, you know, we'll be in contact about that. In I think it was 2018, I got to go with my wife on a trip. That was amazing. And so I'd really encourage, you know, especially these couples, if you want to go, single people, if you want to go, just a great time to go and tell people about Jesus. But with no further ado, Pastor Steve, if you want to come up and, uh, you know, preach whatever you have for us this morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. Um, If you remember, I've come up here just about every summer for the last four years. And uh, the reason is that uh, although I live in El Salvador, um, I've known the Burns for a very long time. I uh, met him when they lived in uh, Bakersfield, California. But also, when I was young, I used to go fishing with uh, two of my friends that are here. Usually I bring one of them with his wife, Scott and Mary. But another one of our friends, Mark, he used to always go with us when we were growing up. And so he came up too, and so we've been going fishing during this week. And so I love to fish in the state of Wyoming. It's 100 times better than, than, than California. So that's why I'm up here this week. And then, um, uh, and then taking advantage to be with you. And I know a lot of you here that have come down on mission trips. And I just want to say amen to what John said. Next year, I'm trying to get him to come to Managua, Nicaragua. Um, people are so receptive. When I first moved to El Salvador, the director of our ministry at that time, even though I'm the director now, said he believed there was more people that wanted to hear about Jesus than Christians that were willing to go tell him. And I always thought that sounded strange, but I believe that with all my heart. I'm convinced of that. There are so many people that are wide open to the gospel in our part of the world. And we just need people that want to be part of the harvest and tell them about Jesus. And you have a lot of fun. You're always trepidation thinking about going to another culture. And you say, well, I don't speak Spanish. But we take interpreters. And a strange thing about our part of the world is that people like to hear English. So they like to hear you speaking in English, and then it's translated into Spanish. And uh, we just have a great time telling people about the Lord it's not like the states. People like to talk about Jesus. They carry Bibles around. They're very open and everything. And so we have a great time doing that. And so um, I would encourage you guys to pray about coming down on the trip. As many of you have already done before, you can talk to some of them that come before. And we're praying about Managua. Pray for the group coming to El Salvador in, in October that, that we'll see great results from that. So I really appreciate you as a church being a part of what we're doing. Um, just to kind of give you some of the, of the numbers because you guys are, have been helping us out. Uh, he was saying he doesn't know how many churches. We're up to 65 churches that we've helped start since I moved there. And we have 380,000 professions of faith. And uh, we were just in three different countries in August. We went to San Jose, Costa Rica. We went to um, Mexico City. And um, we also went to San Pedro Sula in, in Honduras. And we had 13, over 1,300 people make professions of faith. People are just so wide open. 
And you know, during COVID, it was very difficult for us to get into the schools and to do that kind of mission work. And so we were just doing stuff going out to the parks and places like that in neighborhoods. But now we're back in the schools. And if you come down on a trip, I know that Roger will remember that trip when he came and also Tillman was on that also. You'll remember that we went into those schools and you just talk about biblical values. Like the one we did this time was on bullying. You know, why it's wrong to bully. And uh, the teachers love it. The principals love it. And, you know, when we give the invitation, the kids will raise their hand and we'll see a teacher raise their hand who got saved too. And so just a tremendous opportunity. It's fun. Um, so I'll just ask you to pray about it and come down. It'd be great to have you come down on a trip. But this morning, I wanted you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark. And um, I've, I've mentioned a few things about my background to you um, in the last years that I've preached. But I grew up, I didn't grow up in church. I grew up in an atheist home. And uh, my dad was in the military, and so we moved all over the place. And when I was uh, 14 years old, uh, my mother was 34 years old, and we were driving to the airport. We lived in upstate New York, so far upstate that we had to drive to Montreal, Canada to take the plane. And she died of a heart attack on the way to the airport. And it, as you can imagine, if you, any of you are part of the military, you know that um, you know, if your dad's gone all the time, your mom is your, you know, that is your north, you know. That's your compass on everything. And so what it caused me to do is to start seeking after God. And um, uh, seeking after God in just about every religion. People always ask, what about the people who live in the jungle that have never heard the gospel? What happens with them? And I said, if you want to know about it, talk to me. Because when I was 14 years old, I had no idea who God was. Jesus, Noah, Adam, Eve, nothing. Zero. Had no idea. But when my mother died, um, I started seeking after God. And I didn't call it God because I didn't know there was a God. I just noticed in creation, I always came to the conclusion, somebody made all this. And who made all this? And I can remember crying out, wanting to know who had done it. So then we moved out to California, and that's where I met Scott and Mark. And Scott shared the gospel with me, and that's how I got saved um, after that. And one of the things that I loved after I became a Christian that I just loved was prophecy. I know that sounds strange, a new believer loves prophecy, but you have to remember, I came from an atheist home, and I always heard, there's no way you can prove God exists. Um, if God really exists, why is there suffering? All those things you hear all the time. And I always tell people, when I'm sharing the gospel with an atheist, there is a proof that God exists. It's prophecy fulfillment. Um, for ex- I, I, I used to be a chemical engineer before I went off as a missionary, and I love math. And, and one of the things you discover is, when you predict something's going to happen, there's a probability that it's going to happen. And one mathematician named Dr. Stoner calculated what would be the probability that everything predicted about Jesus, 33 things predicted about him when he died on the cross, what's the probability that that could happen? And it's 1 over 10 followed by 200 zeros. There aren't that many particles in the whole universe. And so um, it's absolutely impossible mathematically that God can't exist. And I love science and math, number one. Scientifically and mathematics, it's impossible that God doesn't exist. There's no question about it. So I love prophecy all the time. And so one of the prophecies that um, I just preached on the book of Zechariah that was fulfilled when Jesus came in is, is this prophecy right here that's up on the board. This is in Zechariah 9, 9. And all of you know about this part um, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. You remember that story, right? That's what we call his triumphant entry. 
And it's interesting because we call it his triumphant entry, but there really wasn't a triumph after that. The, the prophecy said he's going to come into Jerusalem on, his, on a donkey, and then he's going to rule, but he didn't. And, and why didn't he rule? And that's what I want us to look at and apply it to our own life. So Mark 11, I'm just going to read it real quick so you get the context. Mark 11, and I'm going to start with a part all of you know, you know, um, starting with verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him, on, on the colt or the donkey. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and, and strawed them, stra- them in the way. And it says, and they went before him, and then they followed crying, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, everything's good. Jesus has been prophesied to come in. They know that the king will sit on a donkey. And they, many of those people are saying Hosanna, which means save us, you know. And they're saying, here comes our savior. Here comes, here he comes. Everything's going perfect. And then there's this weird verse. A lot of times, uh, weird verses are the verses I like to look at to preach on. The weirdest verse I've ever seen is what happens in verse 11. Remember, he's come into reign, and it says in verse 11, and Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the city for Jesus. That city was built. And when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to come to his city, and he's going to reign. So he's in Jerusalem. He's sitting on the donkey. He's the king that's come. They said the king's coming. But it says he entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And remember, the temple was God's house. So I want you to picture this. There's this prophecy that there's someone coming in the future. They're going to sit on a donkey. They're going to come in, and the people are going to cry out, Hosanna. And and it's unbelievable because the exact day was predicted by Daniel. Daniel said, I will tell you the exact day he's coming in. And Sir Robert Anderson took his prophecy in Daniel 9, and he calculated the exact day that Daniel said he would come in on the donkey, came in on the donkey. It's just another one of those prophecies that was fulfilled. And so he comes in, he looks in Jerusalem, which is his home. His house is the temple. That's his house. And he goes into the temple and it says he looked, it says, and when he looked round about all things, and now the evening was come and he went unto Bethany with the 12. That is weird. But let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it. How many times did Jesus sleep in Jerusalem according to the Gospels? Never. Never. You remember what he said that, that he had no place to put down his head, the Son of Man? Remember that? He said a fox has a place, right? You remember that, that um, when he said that? You know where he always spent the night? Bethany. Who was in Bethany? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends. And so Jesus never hung out in Bethany. So here comes the king. He triumphantly enters. He looks around and he's out of there. And why? Because to fulfill this prophecy, the nation had to be prepared and they weren't prepared. Now, I believe there's an application for you and me because in the Old Testament, the temple was a physical building, right? Who is the temple of the Holy Spirit right now? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and who is the temple of God? That's a trick question. If you look it up in the New Testament, every time it says the temple of God, it's when we come together. Okay? It's the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. But when we come together, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is among us. The temple of the Holy Spirit becomes the temple of God. And Jesus is right next to you right now. He, he, he explains it in Revelation as a candlestick. He walks through the church. And he is here. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And no one can do anything about it. But if you want to have the presence of God among us, you got to come to church. Or you got to come to some gathering where two or three are gathered in their name. So in this story, Jesus goes in and looks at a physical temple. He looks around and he says, I'm out of here. Because they're not ready. I believe he does the same thing with us. I think he comes and he looks at us. And he wants to know if we're prepared for him. And so what I want to talk about this morning is, what is Jesus looking for in you? Well, what's he looking for? And it's interesting. This is really interesting. If you read what happens after this, you'll see that Jesus teaches three things to the disciples that are important if you want to prepare your heart for God. If you want Jesus, as he looks into the temple, to use you, to bless you, to do all those kind of things, we need those three things that we find here. He's going to go out with the disciples. He's going to see three things, and they're going to learn three things that, that he wants from every person. So let's, let's look at what it says. Okay, continuing on, verse 12. And on the morning when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. So now we got to remember what's going on here. His ministry's in Jerusalem, but he never sleeps in Jerusalem. He sleeps in Bethany. So he goes to Bethany, which is a few miles away. And then he comes back in the morning to Jerusalem. So it says, uh, when the morning came, he comes um, from Bethany and he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. The first thing that God looks for us in every one of us, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is the number one thing he wants. Well, it's what he said to Adam and Eve when he created him. What was the first thing he said? Be fruitful. And then when they all messed up and he sent the flood and he starts all over again with Noah and his family, what's the first thing he says to Noah and his family? Be fruitful. If there's one thing you can find from Genesis to Revelation is the one thing God wants in your life is fruit. He wants fruit in your life. He, it's it's kind of like if you have fruit trees. Um, uh, the the uh, Scott and Mary have crab apple trees, and I remember when I was a kid, I used to love crab apples. Isn't that weird? But crab apples, um, um, I love crab apples when I was a little kid. But when you have a tree and you plant a tree, it sure is frustrating when you put in all the fertilizer and you take care of the tree and there's no fruit. And it's the same way with God. God created you. And he loves you, and he gave you spiritual gifts for only one reason, to bear fruit. You might say, no, he saved me so I can go to heaven. Well, that's later on. Why are you still on the earth? It's to bear fruit. So that's the first thing I see here. What is Jesus looking for in you? Fruit for God. That's the main thing. You've seen this before. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. You ever had... You ever been walking along, happened to me the other day when I was fishing, and you feel something in your foot, and you're not sure what it is. And you're walking along, and it's like, man, there's something bugging me. And then you realize, wait a second, I think I got a rock in my shoe. And so you take your shoe off, and you pour out the rock, and you put it on. I've I've seen that with a lot of my Christian friends. There's something bothering them in their life. They, They know Jesus, they've received Christ, they know they're going to heaven, but something's not right in their life. The job doesn't go well. The family doesn't go well. And I believe that thing is they're not bearing fruit. We exist to bear fruit. That's our whole purpose. You can look throughout the whole Bible. And when something doesn't bear fruit, Jesus isn't too happy about it. Now, he goes to Bethany. Why does he go to Bethany? 
I believe the reason he went to Bethany is because there was people there that worshiped him and loved him. Uh, in Jerusalem, he found death. In Bethany, he found resurrection. You remember where Lazarus was resurrected? Bethany. In Jerusalem, they were serving themselves. In Bethany, they were serving Jesus. In Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. In Bethany, they wanted to worship him. And so in the, he goes to that place, and I don't know why he's hungry. It says he comes back and he's hungry because I suspect, remember Martha and Mary? Martha's a servant, right? I suspect she prepared breakfast for him. But for some reason, as he's walking along, he sees a fig tree. Now, Bethany means house of dates or figs. So it kind of makes sense there's a bunch of fig trees. And he says, I'm hungry and I want something from there. So, so let's look at what God's design for fruit is. Why is this just an important thing? What is the purpose of fruit? It's to satisfy us when we're hungry. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fruit tree. The purpose is that fruit tree. Give me fruit and then I'm satisfied, right? It's the same way with us. It just, just, just like physical fruit satisfies the person who eats it, spiritual fruit satisfies God. When you bear fruit in your life, God is satisfied. Just like when you eat a really good apple or something like that. And, and in the Bible, there's two kinds of fruit. In the Bible, there's the fruit of winning a person to Christ, and then there's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So if you're involved in teaching, discipleship, anything like that, you're bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you're involved in evangelism, trying to win a person to Christ, that's the fruit of reproducing the fruit. And so this is an important thing. And so when you bear fruit in your life, when you win a person to the Lord, when you are, are, are teaching a class or discipling a person and they're growing in their, in their life, he, he's glorified. By this, my father's glorified that you bear much fruit so you'll be my disciples. When, when my mother died, I always tell people that my mother not only provided for me love, but she provided another thing for me that I realized later on, purpose. When you grow up in an atheist home, the teaching of atheism is that we're here by chance. I always tell that they worship the chance God. And we're here by a chance explosion billions of years ago. And then there was a chance movement of some chemicals and lightning in a prebiotic soap. And then a bunch of creatures came out and they evolved into something else by chance. And it was monkeys and here we are. And so everything's chance. If you, if you constantly believe that way, you have no purpose. Someone else has to provide purpose for your life. And so I remember when my mom died... I would think all the time, why am I here? I, I didn't care. I wouldn't have cared if a truck hit me and killed me because I had no purpose. Well, what am I doing here? And I remember that when I heard the gospel clearly and, and asked Christ to save me, I asked that question afterwards, why am I here? And the, the passage that changed my life was 1 Corinthians 6.20. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. And I've always thought about that. I was at a funeral a couple of years ago with, with my two friends here, someone who grew up with us in high school. And when I gave up my engineering job and went to El Salvador, a lot of my friends thought I was literally crazy. I was out of my mind. Go to a country in the middle of a civil war. You've, you're the first one to graduate in your family or chemical engineer. And, and so I got to see some of those friends and, and some of those friends in that funeral. And I was talking to one of them and uh, he's a guy I shared the gospel with. And he thought, he told the other friends, he didn't tell me my face. It's because Kern... My friends never call me my first name. It took me many years to learn my first name because my friends always called me Kern. <laughs> hey, Kern, 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 you know? And so he says, Kern, this guy had shared the gospel. He told everyone, Kern is crazy, you know? And so I saw him at this uh, funeral and his last name was Bordelotto. I says, Bordelotto, how are you doing and everything? Yeah, he says, you still in El Salvador? 
I says, yeah. He says, when are you coming back? Like, you know, when are you getting over this crazy phase in your life, you know? When are you going to get your head together? Because he did something with his life. He, when I went to study chemical engineering, he studied electrical engineering. He went to the Silicon Valley and became a millionaire and retired young. So in the world's eyes, this guy's great. Steve, he's a loser, you know. He gives it all up to go to El Salvador. And he says, when are you coming back? And I looked at him and I says, Bob, I can't get the picture of Jesus out of my mind. I can't get the vision that Jesus would die for a worthless piece of garbage like me. And the Bible says, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, every drop that came down, every time he was whipped, he was looking at you. And he paid the price. And it says, therefore glorify God and your body and your spirit, which are his. And I can't think of anything that's the least I could do. If I never want to glorify God, I'm going to heaven. You're going to heaven. Don't worry about it. Live the American dream. Don't do anything for God. That's cool. But I just don't think it's right. I really don't. I don't think it's right when somebody paid for me. And the only way you glorify God is what it says here. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So Jesus is walking along with Jewish disciples. He sees a fig tree. Why does he pick on the fig tree? Because the fig tree to the Jewish people represented the nation of Israel. And I won't look at all the verses. I'll just prove it to you with one here. I found Israelite grapes in the wilderness, and I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor, which was a god, and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing that they loved. And so the God's design for fruit is you bear fruit to satisfy God. Do you have to do it? No. But should you? I really think you should. I really think that if somebody takes the greatest price in the universe to save you, the least we can do is try to bear fruit. That, that's what I think. I don't know if you agree with me. Don't worry, you're going to heaven anyway if you're saved, right? But it, I think it's the right thing to do. And so that's the design for fruit, to satisfy God. But notice the disappointment when there is no fruit bearing. It says in verse 13, And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came... If haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. There's nothing more disappointing than having a fruit tree and there's no fruit. Wait a second, there is something more disappointing. A Christian who never bears fruit. Just don't bear fruit. Don't have time. We just don't have time. Good thing Jesus had time. Man, if he hadn't had time, we'd be in big trouble. And so the problem with Israel is, and the reason Jesus did not set up his kingdom, is they weren't bearing fruit. That, that was the whole problem. It says in Hosea 10.1, Israel empties his vine, he brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they had embellished his sacred pillars. Everybody bears fruit. We all worry about fruit. That's why we go to work to bear fruit. We do everything to bear fruit. You look at someone's possessions, that's his fruit or her fruit. You look at their bank account, that's his or her fruit. That's what we live for, to bear fruit. But a tree, just like a tree that's only leaves, when a fruit tree only has leaves, it lives for itself. It wants to have real pretty leaves. But when it produces fruit, it lives for others because the fruit falls and someone else eats it. And so when he wanted to explain what Israel was like, Israel just worries about itself. I just need to make myself look better and everything. And so that's what bothers Jesus here and the reason that he curses the tree. It's just bearing fruit for itself. There's no fruit for anybody else. And when a tree has leaves but no fruit, it's bearing fruit for itself. For whom are you bearing fruit? 
For God? For yourself. Who's it for? And so, of course, Jesus says in verse 14, And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. That's because God is against fruitlessness. In Deuteronomy 20, he says, When you're besieging a city, don't touch the fruit trees, because you can eat from them. But if you find a tree that doesn't bear fruit, you remember what he said to do? Cut it down. Cut it down. In the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, anything that doesn't bear fruit, get rid of it. Fruitless stuff is of no use at all. And so it's kind of a weird passage. I don't know if, this, if you saw this. Isn't it weird that it says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Well, then why is he upset? Remember the first time I read this, that doesn't make any sense. It's not the time of figs. All he finds is leaves, and he's upset. Well, you have to understand the fig tree. The fig tree is a weird tree. The fig tree is the weirdest tree that exists. Uh, here's a picture. We have fig trees in El Salvador. So I'm not a figologist, but, you know, I know I've, I've learned, I can ask people questions about figs. And so the way a typical fruit tree works is leaves, flower, fruit. Do we agree with that? Leaves, flower, fruit. The leaves fall off. Next year, leaves, flower, fruit. Do fig trees work that way? No. Figs are weird. And I believe God made figs weird to teach the lesson on purpose. The way figs work is leaves and fruit together, leaves and fruit together, no flower. As a matter of fact, you know what, how you say fig in Chinese. It's literally to take the word fruit without a flower. That's how you say fig in Chinese. Fruit without a flower. It has no flower. There's no flowers to look for. But when the time of the leaves comes... If there's no little figs, there will be no figs. So when Jesus saw the fig tree with the leaves and no little figs, he said, no way. As a matter of fact, I learned this. Those little green figs that are kind of sour, a lot of Salvadorians like them. Like to put honey on them or something like that. So Jesus seeing leaves and no little figs, he knows this thing has no hope. And then, of course, they grow into these big figs in here. And so Jesus says clearly... I saved you to bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, what's the point? He says it pretty clearly here. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you, have, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And notice that it says them, so you don't have to worry. Because some people say, oh, that means I can lose my salvation. No. It means that if you don't bear fruit, everything that doesn't bear fruit is cut off and is burned. So if you live your life to accumulate possessions, it's all burning up. I remember when I went to El Salvador, my family thought I was off my rocker, which is totally crazy. And I thought, is it crazy to live for Jesus and not worry about a bunch of junk? Or is it crazy to sacrifice your whole life for stuff that's going to burn up anyway? I think the angels, my, my, my little, one of my daughters loves to watch um, reality TV. And one time I said to my daughter, you realize that reality TV isn't real? Oh, dad, don't tell me that, you know. But he's, she watched this show called Hoarders. Has anybody ever seen Hoarders? This is an incredible show. I'm not trying to recommend it, but because my daughter's watching it, these people walk into a house and they can't even move. And it's sad because a lot of times they have, you know, emotional problems. And their whole house is literally filled everywhere with, 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 with just stuff. They can't even walk. And so it just talks about how they try to get them to get rid of all the stuff. 
And I've always thought that the angels have a reality show. The angels have a reality show called Hoarders. And they look at Americans just building up a bunch of junk and they're going, what are they doing? That stuff's all going to burn up. Why aren't they putting up treasures in heaven? Why aren't they living for Jesus? Why aren't they bearing fruit? That junk's going to burn up at 70 or 80 or 90 years of their life. The other stuff's eternal. So who's crazy? (laughs) I sometimes wonder about that. And so when Israel did not produce fruit, he gave it to the church. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. One last thing before I move on. Remember I said that the fig does not have a flower? Actually, it does. This is the weirdest, weirdest fruit that exists. This is the way it works. At this point in its growth, wasps come in and pollinate the inside of a fig. Do you know where the flower is in a fig? There's the flower. Isn't that a picture of, of the way a believer should be? Where should our fruit be? Internal, not external. Just, just a side thing. Second thing, and I'm going to go fast on this. Don't worry. I won't keep you here too long. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught saying unto them, it is not written, is it not written my house should be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were, was astonished at his doctrine. And when nighttime was come, he went out of the city. The, the second thing I think we see here is fervor for God. Fervor, zeal for God. That, that's what God wants to see in us. Everyone is fervent for something. As a matter of fact, that for which you are fervent is your God. If you get all excited about talking about a certain subject and you're going crazy, that's the most important thing. The hardest thing for me when I visit most of my friends in the States is I start talking too much about the Bible and things going on in our church. I got to shut it down because most people want to talk about politics. Oh, you want to get an American fervent politics, masks, vaccines. Wow, they're going crazy. This is awesome, man. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, okay, I'll just get through this because who cares about politics? I mean, I live in a country where you think it's bad here. Oh my goodness. We got a guy who's gonna, is working his way to be a dictator like Ortega. It's a disaster in, in every time. So I learned when I was really young that, you know, that Jesus is gonna change things. That's what we've seen in El Salvador. Jesus is, is the thing. But it's unfortunate that many times we get fervent about the wrong things. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus here is this is towards the end of his ministry. When he started his ministry, do you remember what he did? The first thing he did when he started his ministry and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then it says, then his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. When Jesus started his ministry, he chased out the money changers. When he finishes his ministry, the last act he does is get these money changers out of here. Because most people are zealous for money. Money, money, that's what it's all about. And Jesus comes to the house of worship and he sees that Jesus says, I'm getting them out of here. This is to pray. This is to worship God, not to worship gold. It's to worship God. That is the most important thing. And so he drives them out. You see, God is looking for zealous people, people that are excited about what he's doing. When I first became a Christian, I remember one time someone said I was a fanatic when I moved to El Salvador. And I was always afraid to not look like a fanatic. 
I wanted to be sophisticated. And then I realized everyone's fanatical about something. What do you call the people that follow the Denver Broncos that paint their face and sit in the stands when it's 20 below zero? What are they called? Fans. Well, where does fan come from? They're fanatics. And so are you a fan of Jesus or a fan of something else? I mean, come on. And so Jesus wants people that are zealous. Let me go quickly through this. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people? Zealous for good works. As a matter of fact, I will propose the following. God does not like people that are not zealous. It actually makes him sick. It's what it says in Revelation 3. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I've always thought about that. When I was a little kid, back in the old days, I'm sure young people get tired of hearing this, but when we were kids, they'd open up the door on Saturday morning and say, see you later. You're just gone. That might happen here in this area because that's a very safe area here. But I remember, you know, you can't do that anymore, especially in El Salvador. But we would just go out all day. And my mom would always say, be back at five o'clock. That's it. Be back at five. If you're back at five, that's it. That's dinner. Well, a lot of times I didn't show up on time because we had something important like a great baseball game going or something like that. And so I'd show up. You know what my mom would do? She would serve everyone at five hot food. And if I didn't show up, she just let it sit there. And I remember my mom used to make something I don't see anymore called succotash. And succotash has a vegetable in it that I think they've outlawed. I don't see anybody eating it anymore. Have you ever seen a lima bean? Lima beans? Does anyone still eat lima beans? Because I think they're outlawed. That's the worst, most useless thing I've ever had is a lima bean. But you know what's worse than a lima bean when it's hot? When it's lukewarm. And so the salad, when it has dressing and it becomes rubbery. And so I started becoming punctual because I don't, because we don't like lukewarm things. You don't like coffee that was made in the morning and is lukewarm, right? You don't like milk that sat on the refrigerator for a long time. Another thing my mom would do is sometimes when we would go out in the morning and come back for breakfast, if it was one of those days. And have you ever had soggy cornflakes? Let me reinterpret what God says in Revelation 3. I'd rather you were zealous for cold or hot, but not soggy cornflakes. We don't need more soggy cornflake Christians. Someone asked me, what's the biggest thing that you've seen change in the States since you lived here 37 years ago? Fear. Fear. Americans used to be very entrepreneurial, pioneers. They didn't fear, but they're afraid of everything. Maybe not you guys, but I'm talking in general terms. And you see, fear is what the devil uses to manipulate you. You know what the opposite of faith is? Fear. And so many people are just, oh, you can't be too fanatical. You can't be too crazy. I don't want to do too much. And Jesus says the zeal of his house is eating him up. Where did his zeal come from? His house, the temple, God's place. This is his temple. And he had zeal for it. He was excited about it. We've got to reach more people for the gospel. We've got to teach people. They've got to change their lives because God's glorified. When you win a person to Christ and they grow, he's glorified. He's satisfied. And Jesus gets all fired up because he has zeal for the right thing. Ah, but I'm zealous for other stuff. It's going to burn up. That's kind of silly. It's kind of ridiculous. And and you you know what he says right after? He says, I don't want you to be lukewarm. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous. It's a commandment to be zealous for Jesus. 
So being a fanatic's a commandment. You don't have to do it. Like I said again, you're going to heaven, don't worry. Live the American dream. Just kind of, just kind of be all soggy cornflakes. And I'm not going to get fanatical, man. I go to church on Sunday, but you know, the other days I got to do other stuff. It's okay. You're not going to get lost. Don't worry. I don't think it's right. I just don't think it's right. I think about Jesus, how he was fanatical for me. He was zealous for me. Did you get that? He goes into the temple and he's zealous for the temple. He's worried about his people. He, he loves you. He was so zealous, he gave up the glory of heaven. He was so zealous as they were whipping. You know what it says in Hebrews? It says, because of the joy that was placed before him, he suffered the shame of the cross. We always focus on the pain. He suffered the shame. You know why they put people on a cross? They wanted to embarrass them. Almost everyone was crucified nude. No clothes on. They were usually placed about a foot and a half above the, above the ground so the animals could lick them and could bite them. That's why it says in Psalm 22, I'm surrounded by dogs. And they would sit there and they tried to shame them. They didn't just want to kill you. They wanted to shame you. It was a slow death. And Jesus suffered the shame of the cross because of the joy of seeing his people saved. And that's why he's so zealous for us and he loves us so much. And one more thing before we finish up. It says here, in, in verse 17, another prophecy fulfillment. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Isaiah 56, 7 is what he was quoting. For even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for not just for the Jewish people. You know that nations, the identical word is Gentiles. Gentiles, nations are interchangeable. And you know what he's saying? Israel, you exist for others. So, so, so you can understand what Jesus was doing. I want to show a picture to you because I, I think this will clear things up for you. Okay, so here's the, the, the holiest place, then the holy place. And we all know um, only the high priest can enter here. Only the priest can enter here. Then you have a place for the women, the women's court. Do you see that? Then a place where the priest hung out as they did their sacrifices. But do you see this right here? This is the place of the nations. So here's how the temple worked. You did all your stuff that only Jewish people could come into, but you wanted Gentiles to come and watch. And you know where they were selling stuff? Here. We don't care about evangelism. We care about this. And so what they did is they would sell everything there. Now, selling animals was not a sin you had to do it you'd come from very far away and you couldn't bring your animals so you would it wasn't you know it wasn't usda approved beef it was approved by the levites and they said this lamb is approved you can sacrifice it and so you had to buy that that's legit but what they did is some people didn't want to stand in line outside they would come in here and and i had read that usually a dove cost a half day's pay if you bought it in here was 45 days pay and so they turned the place of worship into a money-making factory. When I became a Christian, I started watching Christian TV and those lunatics that are on there that want money from people. And I was so upset. I said, that's why my family doesn't want to get saved. Because a lot of people see the church as a money-making, a money-making factory. And so you know the reason that many people don't get saved? Because every day they observe the temple, you. And they see us more excited about money. And they say, I don't want to have any part of that. When we are fervent for money instead of God, 
Those who do not know Christ are stopped from accessing and worshiping God. You know, it blows me away about this story. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to go back to Bethany again. One of the times he went to Bethany, he went to the house of Simon the leper. I know all of you remember this story. And a lady comes in off the street who probably was a prostitute. Do you remember this story? And she takes the most expensive thing she has, perfume, and then she um, breaks it open and puts it, and she washes his feet with her hair, and she's crying. And they're all saying, oh, this woman, this is ridiculous. And Jesus says, she's the only one that gets it. She's the only one that gets it. And you know what he said about her? Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. It's because Jesus will always leave religious people who are fervent for money to be with those who are fervent for him and worship him. Now you might be saying, man, this is hard. This is hard stuff, you know, to bear fruit, to be fervent. I got so much stuff going on in my life. And I always tell people, it's not hard, it's impossible. You can't do it, but God can do it. And that's why we finished with the last thing. I mean, you're going to say, duh. Everyone's guessing right now with F, you know. So verse 18 says, And the scribes and chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. Let me just say a, a little parenthesis. The power of Jesus was the Bible. Don't ever forget that. When the devil came at him, he says it is written. And the reason they wanted to kill him is because he preached the word. The Bible is powerful. Learn the Bible. Memorize the Bible. The devil runs from that. And they were worried because he preached doctrine. He preached the Bible. That was what he was so worried about. And then it says in verse 19, And when evening was come, he went out of the city. Oops, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the wrong place. You know, that's right. He went out of the city. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter called to remembrance, saying unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. Now listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in these those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatever he says. Well, therefore I say unto you, What things ever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against any, any um, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you for your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Okay, L- last thing, obviously, is faith. Faith is the key. So we saw, the, we saw the fig tree. This is before. This is after. This is a miracle. I mean, this is, this is an incredible miracle. That's why they're just blown away at this point. So it's interesting because Jesus said... You cursed the fig tree. But Jesus never cursed the fig tree. He never says that. That's what he said. The, the fig tree cursed itself. And Peter said that Jesus had cursed the fig tree, but the truth is that the tree cursed itself by not bearing fruit. Don't have time for it, but if you read Deuteronomy 28, it's a listing of blessings and curses. If you obey me, blessing, blessing. If you disobey me, curse, curse, curse. That fig tree, it was his own fault that it was, that it was cursed at that moment. Jesus came to save. He didn't come to curse. He came to save at this time. And so it's interesting that he says, have faith in God. Now, now just a couple of things I want to uh, uh, look at here. Why does he say have faith in God? A lot of people like to focus on, you know, I can move that mountain from here to there. Now, now they're looking at the Mount of Olives. Remember, they're walking between Bethany and Jerusalem. They're looking at the Mount of Olives. He says, if you say to that mountain, into the sea, it goes into the sea, if you have faith and if you believe. 
And, and so why is he saying that in the context of a tree being cursed? I believe that he said it because he's saying, if you have the faith that's right, you won't be cursed. If you believe in what I'm saying, you'll bear fruit and you'll be fervent for me. But the problem with the nation of Israel is they had not placed their faith in God at that moment. I, I like what someone said about faith. It has well been said that faith is not believing despite the evidence. That's superstition. But obeying despite the circumstances and consequences. The thing I heard all the time was, well, I'm just a re- I believe in reason, you believe in faith. And that's always made me laugh because if you're an atheist and you hate God, you have faith. Everything we do is by faith. Everything you do. You go to a doctor's office and you walk in there and you've never met this doctor and you see a bunch of diplomas on the wall. How do you know that that person studied there? How do you know they didn't make it up by faith? Then the doctor comes out and examines you and says, you have this itis. You know, they always put on itis so you want to pay them more money because no one knows what they're talking about. They don't say, you have a tummy ache, you have colitis, you have gastritis or whatever it is and everything. I'm not picking on doctors if you're a doctor, I'm just joking. But they'll say this big thing that you have, how do you know they're telling the truth? Even if you're an atheist, by faith. Then they'll write out a prescription. And you know, I don't know if it's still this way in the States, but when doctors write prescriptions, nobody can read it. Maybe they type them up now in the States. Do they type them up? Okay. See, I'm an old, I'm, I'm, I'm a dinosaur, I understand. That's why I like Thermopolis. And so, um, yeah, exactly. Thermop is what someone told me that you got to call it. And so he writes up the prescription, you can't read it. So why do you take it? By faith. You go to a pharmacy with this piece of paper, even if you're an atheist and don't believe in God, and someone comes out from behind the counter and you say, hey, I want to give you this prescription. And this person says, oh, I can read it. You ever notice that people work in pharmacies claim they can read prescriptions? Yeah, exactly. Who knows? By faith. By faith. So you go, oh, okay, take my prescription. They walk in the background, back room. Who knows what they're doing in the back room? Are they mixing up meth? Are they making rat poison? I don't know. They come back from behind the pharmacy, and they give me a bottle. It's got a bunch of little tablets. Am I going to take those tablets? No, because I'm reasonable. I don't do anything by faith. That's so ridiculous. What do you do? By faith. The world breaks down without faith. Everybody has faith. But who is the object of your faith? That's everything. You put faith in what some teacher told you to not believe in God? Or do you put faith in what the Bible says? And that's what Jesus is saying to them. If you have big problems in your life like a mountain, you want to move it? Believe in me. The key that God will do anything for you is you have to believe it. And some people say, we well, mean anything? Well, no, you're not going to believe in something that's impossible in the Bible. It has to be according to his will to believe in it. it well, well I, wanna, I want God to give me 10 Mercedes Benz when I come out. Well, you don't really believe that because it's got to be according to his will. So it, does, it has to be something that you don't doubt and you believe because you're in the word of God and you're aligned with God. And that's what it is. Faith is not the key to be able to curse fig trees, but the key to living so as not to be cursed. You know, as I get older, and I, and I finish up with this, two, two, two thoughts. As I get older, one of the things I always pray for is that I would grow in faith. And, and this is my challenge for you as you think about whatever. I'll use an example. Don't, you don't have to do this, but let's say make a mission trip. Because I know the first time I went, I was scared to death. I didn't know what they were going to do to me. 
And so I've asked God, give me opportunities for my faith to grow. Because Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, without faith, it sure is difficult to please God. Does it say that? Everyone's going, you guys are smart. You guys know the Bible. But it's without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that became a big part of it. That's why I, when God called me, I gave up my job and moved to El Salvador. Because I wanted to prove to my family that God's real. By the way, my dad got saved before he died. That was the atheist. And, and, and I want to grow in faith. I really do. Dare to do big things for God. You don't have to make a mission trip. Dare to do big things because God is pleased when you do that. And, and he sees those things. You know, when I stand before Jesus, I always think about the day you and I are going to stand before Jesus in the judgment seat of Christ. You already know this, but every person here is going to go to one of two judgments. Hopefully none of you are going to go to the great white throne. That's for lost people. And in the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, 11 to 15, he will judge your works to determine your suffering in hell. And you may have better works than others, but you'll still go to hell. It'll just be a little bit, I guess a little bit better. I don't know. It's going to be horrible. And so that's what it says in Revelation 20. If you're a believer, you go to the judgment seat of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 1 Corinthians 3. It's in Revelation 4. And in the judgment seat of Christ, right after the rapture, every one of us will be there one day. And so that's why I say this to you for your own good. You're going to stand before Jesus. And it says in Revelation, we're going to throw crowns at his feet. And the reason is, is that the things we do for him bearing fruit, we earn crowns. And we don't earn the crowns to go to heaven. We're already there. But it's kind of like a graduation. When's the last time you went to a high school graduation? Usually in a high school graduation, there's a bunch of people sitting in the audience. And one of the kids gives the valedictorian and they walk up. And you look at them, they don't look that excited. Yeah, I'm the valedictorian, whatever. They don't want to lose control because of their friends. But usually there's a group of people that are going insane, right? Now, you may be a graduate and want to act cool, but your family will not be cool. And those yeah, and all this kind of stuff. And I think that that valedictorian, because they've won that prize, they're cool, but inside they're having a party. And then you see them come out just getting a diploma, not the valedictorian. And they take a picture with their mom. And I like to watch that, or their dad. And you see all these kids taking a picture with their parents with a diploma. And inside those kids are thinking... I did this for mom. I did this for dad. And it's such a great joy, isn't it? If you wouldn't have graduated, your mom wouldn't have kicked you out, right? She still loves you. But isn't it cool when you do something great for your parents and what you feel inside or someone you love? Well, that's nothing compared to Jesus. I just want to stand up before him and see the nail-scarred hands and see him who died for me and have him say, well done, faithful servant. You don't have a lot of crowns, Steve, but hey, you got a few you can throw at me. I can't imagine what it'd be like to have been saved by Jesus and do nothing for him. No fruit, nothing. And stand there. You're going to heaven anyway. Don't worry. You won't be in the best position, but you will be in, in heaven. First Corinthians 3, you can read that later. And you're going to stand there and he's going to say, Steve, I see you have no crowns because I was really busy. You know how it is, Jesus. I had an important job. I was really busy. I had a lot of work to do. And I just can't imagine Jesus saying, it's okay. It doesn't make any sense. I want to stand before Jesus one day. Him who died for someone as worthless as me 
and hopefully just show them a few things. That's why I think what Jesus looks for for all of us is fruit, fervence, or fervor, and faith. And you know, we can't do a lot in this life, but when we do that, God, Jesus gets excited. He, he said, I tell you that he will, no, that's not the right thing. It says, when the Son of Man comes, he will be seeking faith. It is what it says. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Say, I'm not real smart. I'm not real eloquent. But you can have faith. Every person here can have faith. Believe that God can do great things. Ask God to do something great in your life this year, and he will through you if you have that focus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that's so clear about what you're looking for in us. And thank you, Lord, that we know that salvation is by grace. It's unconditional, and we know that we're going to heaven if we've received you. But thank you for the opportunity to live on this earth and be able to do things for you. And Lord, I thank you that we can bear fruit for you. I thank you that we can get excited about you. And I thank you, Lord, that when we believe you and we don't doubt, you do great things in our lives. And so I pray for every person present, every person here, that you would increase their faith. That's my prayer, Lord, that you would increase the faith of every person here and that you would do great things in their lives, great things to impact eternity, not only in their lives, but in the lives of other people. And there's somebody here this morning that doesn't have a personal relationship with you. Somebody that if they died, they wouldn't go to the judgment seat of Christ. They would go to the great white throne. Somebody that has not made that decision, I pray that you would touch their heart so they could receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that you'd have your own way during the last part of this service. In Jesus' name I pray. And with your head still bowed and your eyes closed, maybe you're here for the first time or the 50th time and you've been coming to church and God has spoken to your heart. And, 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 and he's spoken to your heart and you've realized that if you were to die right now, you don't know where you would go. Or, or you say, if I were to die right now, possibly I would go to the great white throne judgment and end up in hell. But I want to change that. I want to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in my heart. If you want to do that, if you want to ask Christ to save you, you, you do it through prayer. The, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can do that right now. Maybe you don't know what to say. You don't know what words to say. Let me help you with the words I said when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you'd like to do it, repeat this prayer with me. Say this to Jesus if you want him to come into your life, if you want him to save you and change you. Just say this. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I can't save myself. Right now, I repent of all my sin. And I open the door of my heart. Come in, Jesus. Save me. Change me. Make me the person you want me to be. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me. And thank you for the great plan that you have for my life. In Jesus' name, I pray. And with your head still bowed and your eyes closed, did you pray and ask Christ to save you? If you did, I want to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you right before we leave this morning. I see your hand. God bless you. God bless you too. God bless you too. Anybody else? Raise your hand and put it down. God bless you too. Anybody else? Raise your hand up and then you can put it down. Lord, I pray for these. God bless you too. Anybody else? I'm just going to give you another opportunity. Anybody else has made that decision? God bless you too. Anybody else? Lord, thank you for these that have indicated that they trusted you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray that you be glorified in their lives. Lord, help them to grow in their faith now that they've made that initial step of faith to accept Christ. Help them to grow in their relationship with you so they can bear fruit 
and they can be zealous and fervent for their life in their life for you lord and i pray one more time for everybody that's here that our faith would grow that we would believe you for great things and that you would use us in jesus name i pray amen in the last part of the service and i just want to say this uh, when i first became a christian i didn't know how church worked and so a lot of times what you'll see at the very end is we'll ask you to come forward and the reason we do that is we want to talk to you so you can know more about your relationship with Jesus. And the other reason is that when people accepted Christ in the Bible, they always told everybody else about it. So John's going to do an invitation. I wanted to explain why we always do that because I remember when I became a Christian, I wonder where they tell them to come forward. So anyway, go ahead. Amen. So if God has been worked in your heart through this, this, this message today and, and you want to profess Jesus as your Savior, Lord, in a minute I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and you'd ask if you would stand and, and, and we're going to be singing a familiar song. Or, or maybe you have questions and you want questions answered. Well, I'm going to be here. Pastor Jess will be here. Or like I always say, maybe you've made that commitment, but you've never been baptized. This is the time where you would come forward and, and tell the church, I want to profess Jesus Christ and Savior and Lord through the ordinance of baptism. To tell the world this is what he did. He died and he rose again. Or maybe you want to join a church that preaches the gospel, that we're saved by Christ and Christ alone, and we can add nothing to it. And if you want to join a church like that, when Cross Point Baptist is for you. So pray with me and we will have this invitation. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for Pastor Steve and for, for his, his ministry and, and all the, the, the men and women that you have surrounded him with that want nothing but to, to produce fruit for your glory, Lord. And Lord, I pray for the same for, for, for Cross Point Baptist, for all the men and women here that want nothing but to go and share with the, the, the people of Warland. Lord, I thank you for them. And Lord, I also pray for everyone here right now, if they're stirring in their heart, that you would give them the, 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 the confidence, the boldness to step out and to come to you, Lord. I thank you for this and say this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.